and welcome back to another episode of the Real Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Jacob O'Connor. Real Conversations is a podcast for those dedicated to doing hard things and living a meaningful life. This belief is perhaps best encapsulated by a quote from the great Teddy Roosevelt. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles, nor where the doer of deeds could have done them better. Now the credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena. With that being said, welcome back to another episode of Real Conversations. Today, I'm joined by my good friend, Dane Laughlin. Dane, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for the invite back. I appreciate that. I know. It's been a minute. Uh, for those of you that don't know who Dane is, I think it's episode 42. It was the first time you came on. You guys should go back, listen to that, and then fast forward yourselves to here. But Dane, what's new? What's going on, man? And staying busy. Um, you know, I, I think we talked, I don't remember when that uh, that last episode was, but you know, in the, the past uh, we talked a little bit about, you know, some changes that are coming to my group. So mm-hmm. we're kind of further down that line. Keep talking with the camera. Learning lots of lessons here. Uh, so, you know, pretty interesting. I, uh, one of the things that I'm learning you know, right now is, you know, what it, what it means to be, you know, a good leader as far as, uh, you know, how do you actually effectively lead a team? Um, you know, there, there's a lot that goes in there. That is something that I've been thinking about likely too far deep or, or too deep than other people normally would. What does it actually mean to lead someone? Like take this all the way back to like the Roman empire. You're a general, you're a captain, you're leading troops. Like you have to have people that are buying in and believing in whatever the idea is that you have. And it's such a strange, weird concept if you really think about it. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the number one priority of leadership should be um, well, there, there's kind of two different things. One would be to set a vision that people will buy into. Uh, I think particularly in the space that, that I work in, that's really important, uh, making sure that people understand why it's important that we're doing the things that we're doing. Um, and I, I think the other aspect of it is making sure that you're aligning the objectives that you set as part of that vision with you know, the comparative advantages that people have, and then also making sure that they're passionate about those things. Nobody wants to do work that they're not, you know, passionate about. And so um, making sure that you build a, a team around the concept or the vision that you're going for, I think is really important. That's something that you mentioned too earlier before we started was doing work that matters and that you feel like makes a difference, makes time fly so much faster <laughs> rather than the hours just dragging on, you're waiting to go to the bar. How do you think people find that type of meaningful work? Because I think you have. I think I'm doing things I enjoy, but there's. I would say the majority of people, unfortunately, are just not enjoying their situation in life. I think there's maybe a couple of things that would that help in that. I think one is not taking the job that you get, or not being constrained by what you think the job you get is. If that makes sense. So, you know finding additional ways to be able to provide value outside of, uh, you know, what, what your traditional role you might expect from you, I think is, is one thing. Um, so, you know, like a a good example of this, you know, I was an intern at one point at at Coke and, uh, I was in the environmental health and safety team. So a lot of like audits and a lot of making sure that we're in compliance, uh, which is fascinating, but it wasn't something that I wanted to do in the long term. And uh, so one of the, the early projects that I brought was, hey, can we use smartwatches to replace walkie-talkies? So it's kind of like Inspector Gadget, you know, <laughs> like you're talking into your your smartwatch. Uh, and that would never be part of a traditional role. 
that kind of project. That's more of like an IT or like an operations type of thing. Um, but it was something that I pursued because I thought it was interesting and I thought it had real value even within the EHS space. And so that's a, like that's what I mean by looking for additional ways to bring value. And then you tailor that to the things that you're passionate about. Um, so I, I think that's one thing. Um, I think the other is kind of an attitude you know, based thing, which is, uh, you know, redundancy is, is painful. You know, if you go into work and you do the same thing every single day, uh, it can be very uh, draining. Yeah. And so I think uh, trying to kind of get creative around, you know, how do you address different things? How do you look at it as a learning opportunity? You know, all that stuff and try and really soak up everything so that you're prepared for the next thing that, you know, you go into. With the amount of people that are in a job that they don't enjoy and you think about spending just 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years of your life doing that thing. The ability that we have as humans to find things that interest us and to go into them. Why do you think people do stay in that same box? Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, I think it comes down to the the box that you put around yourself. You know, I'm just an accountant. I'm just, you know, whatever the role is that, right. that they fill. And I think it's important to think about, you know, it's that plus whatever it is that you make of it. And so I think that's, that's one thing is people feel like they're constrained to the environment that they're in. Uh, I also think that a lot of times people make decisions about the, what they want to study, you know, for college, for instance, they make that decision when they're 18, you know, which is like, if, if you think about the fact that we give 18 year olds the ability to get hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of loans and go and study something that they think that they're going to like for the rest of their life, like that's such an asinine idea, you know, and we, we do that every day all the time. I, I, sorry, I have to jump in right real quick. Like the idea that you're 18 and you say, Hmm, I'm going to be an accountant because that's what my dad does and he makes $82,000 a year and that sounds like a good plan to me. And then fast forward 50 or 40 years or whatever it is and that's the exact path you followed. Yep. That's a scary thought. Oh man. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I didn't even know how to do laundry at 18, let alone, you know, what <laughs> I want neither. to do for my whole life, right? So, I still can't do laundry. <laughs> well, we're all learning, you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that there's a there's a trap there though, in thinking that you have to follow mm -hmm. the thing that you, you know, there's a, a sunk cost fallacy there. And I've spent all this money. I spent all this time. You know, I have to go and do this thing that I committed to four years ago. And I think the other thing that people don't think about is you know, even at like, let's say the average lifespan is 80 years old, even at 50 years old, you've got 30 years worth of time left in your life. So, I mean, career change at 50, like you still have 30 years now, granted, like you probably want to retire before, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, 80 or whatever. But you know, the, the point being, I think we're really bad at understanding time as human beings. You know, we talked about like when you're really enjoying stuff, it's like the week flies by it's Monday and then it's Friday and you're like, Oh my gosh, you know, right. everything that happened in between. So, you know, we're human perception of time is an interesting thing, right? Because the opposite is that, you know, somebody's 50 years old and, you know, they really hate their job and they feel like they can't make a change because like, you know, I've been doing this for 20 years and, you know, who's going to, you know, who's going to take me because I, this is all I've ever known. Kind right. Of deal. Like that's a fallacy as well. And so I, I think it's interesting, like, or it's important to maybe break those perceptions of, of 
you know, time. That's difficult though, because everyone around you that also holds that same vision of, of yourself is going to be like, what is going on? He's acting out of character. Like by, by nature, we are routine creatures. Mm -hmm. And when someone starts to head in a separate direction of, you know, they're overweight and they start working out, then their overweight friends like, yo, what are you doing? Why are you Mm -hmm. doing that? Or someone's working extra hours, trying to make more money, trying to start a business. Like, why are you doing that? Like, come back, come over here. Yeah. I mean, I think you can only control the things that you can control though. Right. Like you can't control how your friends react to things that you do or, um, I mean, you can predict the way that people (laughs) will react and you can make decisions based on that. But if you're doing something better for yourself and there are people around you that aren't, you know, helping you achieve that goal, I'm not saying like, there's a lot of people who also will say like, Oh, you got to get rid of your old friends and you got to you know do whatever. I'm not a fan of that. (laughs) Like I'm a big fan of people who are, who are, who are loyal to you. Um, you know, to the end. Mm-hmm. And I think it's about finding the right people, you know, to go on that journey with. I mean, it's, it's like marriage too, you know, like you're finding somebody that you can grow with. Um, I think you should think about your friends in the same way. Like, you know, I want to grow up with these people and see them be successful. And so, um, yeah, I, I think letting other people, I, I think, I think you're right. It's difficult because other people do tell you these things, but I think, hopefully this podcast can be a catalyst for like just taking a step back and going just, just self-evaluation I think is really important. I don't think enough people do that. It's, it's so important because like I catch myself falling into traps of like maybe, and maybe I'm going to play basketball. Right. And it's like, I used to play basketball every day in high school and I wouldn't be afraid to go jump and try and dunk it or to run full court. And like now I'm hyper-conscious of you're getting older, careful about your (laughs) ACL, careful about, your knee or your back or this and that. And it's like, well, there's some validity to that. There's also the element of, I thought about this last night in the shower, actually. People, people in the NBA that are 22, which is my age, are at the the peak of their athleticism. And it, they're still probably inclining on their in their athletic ability until the age of maybe 27 in the mm-hmm. NBA. And then maybe it's just a little bit of a decline, but it's more skill-focused after that point. And so why do I put the limitation on myself that at 22, it's like, ah, it's downhill, downhill from here, man. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and I mean, you know, there's a certain reality to things too. Like, you know, you can't be 45 and like go and, you know, dunk. I mean, you can, but like <laughs> your, your risk of ACL tear and all that stuff is much higher. So, I mean, you, there's, there's obviously weights, you know, that you have to give to things. And, and I think there's, uh, there's a time and place to take risk. And so maybe dunking, you know, at 45 is not the right thing, but you know, taking a risk in a career or something like that, you know, would be. Um, so yeah, I think, I think you have to look at dependencies, you know, too, on like age is a hard thing to combat. Um, whereas, you know, like experiences, it's just time. Yeah. Well, it, it comes back to those limitations, like you were saying that you put on yourself. And if you think in broader terms, then sure you do have those dependencies, but you can often do a lot more than you think you can. Oh, absolutely. Um, have you read the book, uh, living with the seal? Uh, Jesse Itzler. Yeah. Yeah. So I not read it, but I've, I've I know plenty. About okay. It. Awesome. Yeah. Fantastic. book. I mean, they talk about the 40% rule, right? When you, when you're feel like you're a hundred percent done, you're only 40% away. Like I, I think that that's an important you know, thing to keep in mind too. Um, you know, that's a, you know, there's tropes here though too, which, uh, like you, you get like the grind culture, you get all these different things that come out of that. And so yeah. there's good and bad, but I, I think it's more of like a internal realization of, or, or self-evaluation, like we were talking about earlier, like, how do I, how well do I know myself, you know, and at what point does it, 
is there diminishing returns and I have high risk now versus, you know, am I just not pushing myself hard enough? And I think you have to do hard things to understand yourself to be able to do that. So it's, it's a it bit is. of a, or a, you know, circular thing there. No, no, I, I love that. One of the, I guess term, one of the terms that John and I have kind of coined over the podcast, cause I couldn't find better words to put it into is living an exciting life. So that's kind of, I have a vision, an all encompassing vision of what that means for me. What does living an exciting life mean to you? Yeah, I've kind of like a derivative of that, which is, you know, have a memorable life, mm-hmm. you know, and, and the way that you have a memorable life is not sitting watching Netflix every night, you know, uh, finding the, the next episode of whatever. Right. It's doing things that are different. And I, it doesn't even have to be like, you know, dramatically different. Like it doesn't, you don't have to go and, you know, be an Olympian or, <laughs> you know, something, cr- you know, crazy to, <laughs> to live an exciting life. But I mean, you know. Find find new ways to do the things that you're already doing. And, you know, I think also that helps you with optimization. You know, like as you go through and you do the same things every day in different ways, you find ways that are better than others and um, you can kind of opt- sub-optimize or you can optimize within, you know, the, the realm of that. Um, yeah, I, I also think that it's about, doing things that, well, I think it's about doing things that you like, which we touched on a little bit already, but it's also about doing things that uh, are challenging to you. Um, Cause nobody like, you know, think about like your, your top five proud moments of running and you're a big runner. That's probably not the like five mile run that you did one time, you know, on an average day, right? It's the hundred mile run that you did where Attempted. Like, well, okay. 80 miles. <laughs> yeah. I, you really failed there. I don't know. <laughs> but you, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's like you remember the things that stand out. And so make more things stand out in life, I think. So what do you, you said that you can find yourself, understand yourself through hard things. What are, what is your version of hard things that you like to do? Not that you like to, that you make yourself do. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Like I, I've got a lot of little things like that I do and, and I'll share them, but they're silly you know, personal <laughs> things. I, I think, you know, from like a work perspective, um, there's a, dealing with uncertainty is a really difficult thing. And in the space that I work in, you know, everything's uncertain. Uh, you know, a lot of stuff we haven't tried before or it hasn't been tried before completely new use cases. So I like to lean into that a little bit though. That's, that's really where I feel like I enjoy myself is when you're learning and, and you're making mistakes, but like, it feels like you're uncovering or, you know, solving a mystery, you know, like yeah. a mystery of the universe is being solved as it, as the, the project unfolds. Like I, in my personal life, like literally yesterday I was mowing my yard and like, I refused to use the self-assist like push mow yep. you know, feature. Yep. And I just forced myself, it's like 105 <laughs> degrees outside and I'm forcing myself to, you know, hard push the mower. Dude, that's great. Because you know, like, because it's something that I'm already doing it. Mm-hmm. And if I can get a little bit more out of it, then I should get a little bit more out of it. Right. So Dude, I love that. Yeah. So like, that's a goofy thing. Like people are gonna be like, what an idiot, you know, he's push mowing his, his lawn for no, or, uh, you know, not using self-assist, but that's like an example of like intentionally make things hard for yourself. And I think it, it makes, it hardens you as a person mm-hmm. in a good way. Yeah. It's, it's scary because like, as we become more efficient, which we like as the supply chain becomes more efficient, as we have Uber eats and you have Netflix and on-demand things, 
it is so much easier to live an easy life. Like you still have difficulties that come up, but you have to be more conscious of choosing to do hard things. Yeah. Well, it's that whole thing. It's like, you know, easy times make soft men, soft men make hard times, hard times make hard men, you know, in the cycle, you know, goes, goes around. Uh, you know, my goal is to, I'm not running 80 miles. I can tell you that much, but my, my goal is to, to keep, you know, keep it challenging. And because uh, I, I think, you know, only the things that are a little bit painful are where you grow. <laughs> if you're if you're doing stuff just every day, you know how boring mowing is when you're not <laughs> super sweating because you're hard pushing the mower. Yeah. But you have the best lawn in the neighborhood. Uh, no, no, no. I wouldn't even uh, give that to myself. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think there's I think you can find enjoyment in that, too. You know, it's stupid to be like proud that you did, you know, something like mow the yard without, you know, self-assist, but it's, it's different, you know? I don't think that's stupid. I think that like you need a little stuff like that, little wins like that, and it helps you be a more confident and well-rounded human. Yeah. Well, I think it also, um, brings you a little bit closer maybe to, you know, mowing the, the yard's not a great example for this, of, of this, but I think you know, things that are even a little bit humbling, you know, so I'm like, I have one of the Garmin watches. I'm like looking at my heart rate as I'm <laughs> pushing around the arm, like, man, I'm really like, I need to get in better shape kind of thing. Right. Um, I think the, I think if everything's easy, it's easy to get arrogant, if that makes sense too, because, you know, as far as you know, everything's great and easy. Um, whereas if you insert a little bit of difficulty, there's a humility there that I think is good too. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that we talked about, in the first episode that I could not remember the name of that you actually inspired me of is the Dunning-Kruger effect, where whenever you start something off and you don't realize the depth of what you're trying to do, you're like, oh, it's easy. I'm great at this. Nope. But as time passes and as you have to do more and get more experience, you realize how big that bubble is and how small you are and how much more difficult it's going to be. You know, it's interesting, too, if you think about, like, the progression of a skill set. You know, there's this there's this level of, like, you know, you have no skill and then – you enter in this, it's an S curve, mm-hmm. right? And like you enter in this like high growth phase, you're getting better every day. You know, the learning stuff. curve. Yeah. And then you hit this plateau of, you know, the difference between somebody who, uh, you know, is a, is a college athlete and somebody who runs track for the Olympics, you know, could be like very little if you look at it mm-hmm. from like a, a time perspective, but the am- like amount of effort it takes to go from here to there is massive. And so I always like massively respect the people who are like the professionals in their, their sport, because it's like, yeah, I could probably get pretty good, but the amount of like time it takes to go from where I'm at to where they're at is huge. Yeah. So we learned the, one of the very few things I actually remember from taking one engineering class in college (laughs) was the, uh, was the learning curve. And it was a spirit air systems was one of the examples. They have one of their engineers who's learning how to do one of their processes and I think it was something along the lines of if the goal is to get to 100% uh, proficiency, you can get to 70% proficiency in like, I don't know, 40% of the time. So call it an hour, you'll get to 70% of that proficiency. Mm-hmm. To get to that last 30% to get to the where the best engineers are, that takes like months. Yep. And it's crazy how you can pick up just 70% of that last little 30, you really got to work for it. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting too, because if you get good enough, so 70%, let's say if you get good enough, there's, there's two variables here, in my opinion, there's the actual skill, you know, the, the quantifiable skill that you have in this. And then there's the long, <laughs> there's the, there's a quantifiable skill, you know, that you have. 
And then there's a confidence level associated with that. And the danger is when you get those mismatched, mm. right? So like when, when my team is the, uh, the uh, advanced learning capability team. So like one of the things that we think about a lot is uh, if somebody's going to perform, you know, a skill set, you're generally pretty safe if you know that you are 70% proficient and also 70% confidence mm -hmm. in your proficiency. The problem is when you're 50% proficient and 100% confident because that's where the the problems happen, right? And so that's a that's an interesting thing of like when you're training people, the method matters because you have to make sure that the the method uh, delivers the correct amount of confidence as part of the the training process. So what I mean by that is like uh, a lot of times like you can have people watch math videos, right? And they'll watch the math video and they'll be a hundred percent confident they can do it. Mm -hmm. And then they'll go and try and execute on it and they'll do a terrible job. But uh, like then they get kind of repetition in there and they're able to actually do it. But the mismatch between thinking that you have the skill set and actually, you know, you're, you're where you're at on the, the skill you know, spectrum or whatever um, is where the danger lies because, you know, then you're 45, like, or, you know, you're uh you're the 45 year old breaking their ACL because they thought they could you know, dunk. <laughs> Overconfident for sure. Yeah. I, I always, even all through school and still now, whenever people explain something and they're like, all right, you got it. I'm always like, no, like, let me take a shot at it. And then I'm likely going to have questions. Then I'll come back to you because I used to get so frustrated in school whenever someone, when the teacher would explain what's going on and then just expect us to go do it and not have any sort of assistance or help. Cause I just knew I wasn't going to get it right off the bat. I needed them to come tweak it after I started. Yeah. Repetition's a huge thing, you know, in learning and, and seeing variations of repetition is another important, it's like weightlifting or something like that. Like you don't want to do the same curl every single day. Right. You know, you want to do variations of that curl in order to build real strength. And so I think we should think about learning in the same way as like, yeah, you, know, you want to train the same muscle groups, but you don't want to do the same movements over and over um, because it's not beneficial after a certain amount of time. When you talk about the, confidence level and the proficiency level, or I guess the, the skill level, what happens whenever the proficiency level is much higher than the confidence level? Uh, you just don't achieve the full potential of, of who you can be, right? Like if, if you're a incredibly, uh, competent, you know, person and like, it, you know, uh, like I'm trying to think of analogy would be like skiing, right? Like if you're like a, you know, from a skill set level, you really could be doing black diamonds, but you stay on the green the whole time. I mean, I guess if you're happy within that, then that's, that's fine, but you're not being what you can be. Yeah. That's, that's another like quote that I love. It's like, be who you be, what you can or be who you can be. And, and the, the point is like maximize your potential, you know, within that, um, so that, yeah, it'd be interesting. I wonder how many people are doing that too. You know, they have so much more potential. They're just not. That's, that's what always freaks me out because you don't want to be arrogant and overconfident, but the amount of people I'd say have the opposite issue of, well, I don't, I don't shoot for something that that's, that is ambitious because, well, I couldn't do that. They just kind of count themselves out. Yeah. And I, I think it also depends on what the challenge is that you're trying to, or that you're facing. Uh, I mean, obviously if there's a thin margin and your life's on the line, like you should probably be pretty confident, you know, <laughs> in the fact that you can do it and you should have some data to back that up. But I mean, if, if the, the outcome is that you do something and like you get a little embarrassed, do it, 
you know? So I, I think it's also a risk reward metric on, um, you know, measuring correctly the risk, you know, associated with something. If they have, I guess this is speaking to risk profile, if they have two different types of risk profile, one being like trust your gut, emotional minded, you may look at some numbers, but it's more about how do I feel about this? And the second one is hard numbers, analytical, which side do you think you fall on? Uh, I'd like to say that I fall on the analytical side, you know, because it's data driven. Um, I would, I would say that I fall somewhere in between though. I mean, I think there's, there's the kind of rationalist approach to things, uh, and, and people are just irrational. Like, I don't, I don't care who it is that you ask, like people do irrational things, you know, all the time. And, um, you know, so I think, I think you should be data driven, but human centric, if that makes sense. And so, um, that's kind of my approach is, you know, uh, you, like even with like leading people, there's, there's some decisions that you can make that probably logically make sense, but don't actually feel good. And so, um, you know, there's an interesting kind of gray area there on making sure that, that you're taking care of that appropriately. Like, like one example, this always cracks me up. We went to, do you, have you ever been to Cedar Point? No, we're Cedar Point. Okay. Cedar Point's in Ohio. Okay. And it's a, it's like one of the biggest, um, uh, like, they have some of the biggest roller coasters in the world. Um, so, you know, imagine like every roller coaster there is, you know, top 20, you know, in the U S kind of thing. Amazing place. It always cracks me up though, because you walk around and there's all these people are all scared, you know, to go on these roller coasters. And it's like, look at the math on this, you know, nobody's like, or, you know, I don't, I don't know what the actual statistics are, but like the likelihood that you're actually going to have anything happen to you that, is bad is so low. And so like, that's a, it's a great example of, you know, there's a lot of irrational fear um, in places that I think that's where people, I think when you're confronted with something like that, push through it yeah, and try it. So a little bit of a segue here, or I guess tangential comment. Uh, that was always my mom. So growing up, we lived in St. Louis, so we have something called six flags. Oh yeah. Do yep. you, are those here or no? Uh, not, not in Kansas, but uh, I've been to several Six Flags. Okay. They're great. Six Flags is great. It's an amusement park, lots of roller coasters. They have this iconic ride called the Mr. Freeze. Mm-hmm. And so yep. it's either this or the Superman, but it's the one that takes you straight up in the air. You're sitting in a chair, and it just drops you down really quick. And uh, there was one case where someone in Texas, like, lost a toe because it got clipped or something. <laughs> wow. and, and so I went to Six Flags maybe, like, twice before the age of seven. And then between seven and... And 18, I never went because my mom was always so freaked out. It's like, funny. you guys aren't going there. It's a death trap. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it's interesting. Measuring risk is a really, I mean, that's a skill set in and of itself that I think people should work on and, and try and build capability, you know, in for themselves. Um, because, I mean, we you probably take more risk driving to work, you know, than you yeah. do getting on a, a roller coaster. And yet, because the roller coaster is more kind of hyperbolic in the way that, you know, somebody lost their toe you know, people are much more afraid of that than falling in the shower or driving to work or, you know, doing normal everyday things. So I think that's another piece of this is, so that's where I feel like I'm pretty logical. Like I'll look at things and go, okay, statistically, like this is scary. You know, I, I, you know, I don't particularly love heights. Like this is a scary thing, but statistically the likelihood that anything is going to actually, you know, go wrong other than me having fun Mm -hmm. is pretty low. And so that's, that's that's how I approach things. Is be stati- 
you know, kind of logical in the way that you think about things, but also, you know, understand yourself. Like, you know, if you're going to go and like, it causes you to have some other kind of, like, if it makes you incredibly sick, you know, as another great example, like, don't do that, you know, don't be sick all day. Like, that's, that's crazy how you can mentally through fear and whatever else convince yourself to the point of having a physical reaction. Yeah. That is crazy. Uh, yeah. And it's, it's the rationalization, you know, piece of this that, that isn't there. Right. I think it, it's a very emotional response to things. And so, yeah, it's, that's an interesting, um, tension, you know, between the kind of logical and emotional sides, you know, the brain, you know, fighting, um, it's that survival instinct. Like yeah. you could have a big conversation with a significant other, a big presentation, just something pivotal that you know is going to happen call it today and all morning you can just feel sick you can be out of it you're just so screwed up internally and in the moment that it's over with that wave of relief is like ecstasy it's the weirdest feeling yeah well it's crazy too you know there's a lot of therapies out there where people are uh so do you know who andrew huberman is oh love huberman okay yeah so he has an amazing podcast right. and all that stuff but they uh is he stanford or harvard i can never stanford stanford okay uh david sinclair is the guy who's from harvard i believe um, but, uh, Andrew Huberman actually has a lab where they do like the VR stuff with sharks. And, oh, really? Like, yeah. There's, there's a lot of, um, uh, like fear therapy that they do. So people who are like hyper afraid of heights, they'll put on a VR headset where they know they're safe and then they'll expose them to heights. And over time it gets rid of their fear. So that's an interesting that's cool. concept to think about though with yourself too, is like, what are the things that you're afraid of and just do a little bit of it. You know, and you can kind of build yourself out of having that anxiety, you know, over time um, because you've been exposed to it and you kind of know what to expect. That exposure is so important. Going back to, I guess, kind of the risk profile, I had one last follow on question. <laughs> what do you think of intuition? Um, yeah, intuition's interesting because... Very interesting. Yeah, so... Well, uh, actually... Uh, how would you define intuition as maybe a good place to start? I would go with the, the gut, the gut feeling, the gut feeling. So my interpretation is that intuition, like, I don't, I don't think anybody's, you know, it's funny. Intuition is uh, talked about as this thing that people just innately have, mm-hmm. you know, you have an intuition for X. I, I don't think that's the case. I think that people, it's a culmination of different experiences that people have that, give them a better data set than other people Mm. to be able to make the decisions that they're making. And I think that's intuition because it's not like in your head, you're waiting like, you know, this variable and this variable, (laughs) you know, and, and that's what makes me think this, but like, you know, I, uh, an example of this would be if you took somebody who never, you know, drove a car, you know, before, and you took them to a racetrack and put them in an F1 car, they're probably not going to do as well as somebody who's driven a car before. Right. And you could say that the person who's driven the car has an intuition for driving, or you could just say that they have similar experiences that they can drive, derive, not drive, um, you, that they can, you know, derive those skill sets from, and then therefore they're, they're better at that. So that's kind of my impression of, of, um, of that. I think it's, yeah. Intuition is one of those things that I also think, bothers me because people lean on it as a crutch mm. oh it's not intuitive to me it's like well you just haven't done enough of it right 
No, I, I can see the crutch one. I'm coming more from the perspective of I've interviewed countless entrepreneurs where they were working on Wall Street, they were doing whatever, they had a career, and then they just quit it. No great rationale, started a business, and I asked them, and they're just, they, they say things along the lines of, I just had a gut feeling this is the direction I need to go. I, I had this intuitive feeling I needed to do something like this. Yeah, well, I think that, that and, and again, I'm, I'm happy to be wrong. Push back on me, by the way, if, if you don't necessarily agree you know, with what I'm saying. I, I think some of that comes from some experience that it, I feel like rarely do you find people who up and quit and go and do something that they've never like ever had any kind of exposure to, because like, how do they have the idea if they've never had exposure to it? Right. So they, they have some form of exposure to that thing. And so I think, uh, there's something to be said for having experiences in different areas that aren't related to this thing that allow you to bring insights that that somebody who is very familiar with that topic maybe couldn't bring themselves. And so I think that may be, you know, part of it is like if you're part of, you know, if you're an investment banker on Wall Street and then you go and start your business, you have a pretty good fundamental understanding <laughs> of finance, right. you know. And so and and you might have a fairly good understanding of the companies that are going public, you know, all these different things which may culminate in mm -hmm. the concept that you bring forward and, and do as your business. So that's that's my interpretation. Um, what do you think of my interpretation? I honestly am asking because I'm not fully developed. There's, there's things like in, intuition and coincidence, like person that was supposed to be on a flight, all of a sudden they're just like, I shouldn't get on this flight. And that flight, the plane crashes and everyone dies, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Like that's a huge case of people call it, in, is it intuition or is it a coincidence? And people don't believe in coincidence. People don't believe in intuition. Yeah. And so it's just something I've been thinking a lot about lately. Like what actually is it? Yeah, um, you know, Jerry, um, my boss at work, yep. he has this great quote. Uh, he said, you have to play in the street to get hit by the luck truck, right? Yeah. And I think that's a, a big piece of it. You know, in the in the, uh, you know, in the the good instance where somebody actually gets lucky and good not things happen. Not the airplane. Yeah, yeah, not <laughs> the airplane. Um, I think, uh, so, you know, in that instance, I think that a lot of it is, you know, um, what is it? Fate favors the prepared mind. Yep. I think that that's a, an important, you know, aspect of this too, is like there, there are a lot of people who they say, oh, I got lucky. He did X, Y, Z. It's like, yeah, there's probably a fair amount of that that contributed there, but, you know, they were, they took advantage of the situation that they were in and, and they really, you know, did the work to, to make it happen. So we can't control luck. Right. You can only control how you, you know, deal with the times that you do get lucky. And so I think our, all of our goals should be to just optimize those lucky instances as much as we can and push it to the brink. Going back on, on my word about not having a thought, I do have a thought <laughs> on intuition. Uh, I think often, I think real intuition of just like you were saying, going and doing something randomly for no reason, no prior experience, unlikely. I think more about intuition in the capacity of I trust myself. Like it, mm -hmm. I'm, this is very risky. I'm scared, but intuitively I think I can do it and figure it out. I think that's more of how I would think of intuition. Yeah. That, well, I think under that definition, I, I definitely believe that you can. And I definitely just changed the words. I, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can, I think I would, what would I call that? Let me think about what I would call that. But um, I definitely think that as you do more things too, you you understand conceptually like what are the things that that drive benefit in these areas, 
Um, How, man, not the last one. I'll stop going down this rabbit hole. Bless you. How would you define luck? Oh, man. Uh, I mean, as like a super broad definition, I think it's good things that happen to you, not by your own accord, uh, is, is maybe like a simple way that I would def- define that. Like a, like a spot. random occurrence? Yeah, a random occurrence that happens to you where you have no input as to whether or not that thing actually happened, um, I think is, is, you know, a good way to think about it. And again, the the nice thing about randomness is it happens to everybody. Everybody mm-hmm. gets lucky at some point. I think it's the degree to which you take advantage and the de- obviously the degree to which you get lucky is what impacts that. Well, but if you if you look to the if you compare this to wealth, you have the top 20% that make 80% of the money and then the bottom 80%. If you have to play in the street to get hit by the luck truck, then you could make the argument that perhaps there are some inputs that people do change to get hit by just a little bit more luck than other people. It's not all entirely luck, but some people have more success or luck than other people. Yeah, I agree. Well, and I mean, there's no doubt that, uh, you know, so for instance, like, um, I don't remember where I read this, so don't quote me on this, but this is factual. (laughs) I mean, uh, there was some article I read where like one of the number one predictors of childhood success is zip code. Really? So where you grow up, determines, you know, your economic outlook, um, is, is essentially what this article was saying. Mm-hmm. So I'm again, paraphrasing an article and I have no citation. So, uh, you know, feel free. Yeah, I'm sure you could look it up. It'd be easy enough to find, but that's an interesting concept to me because what that means is that your environment is really kind of what depend or what dictates what your future looks like. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I think we all have to optimize within the environment that we're in and that's the, again, that's the thing that we can control. I'm like a big, you know, control the things that you can and, you know, let, let the world kind of happen around you type of thing. And so, um, yeah, there, I mean, there's certainly, you know, it's the whole Donald Trump thing, like, you know, a small loan of a million dollars. Like, yeah, it's pretty lucky to be born into a family that's very wealthy. Right. But I mean, you know, it's, it's not like he chose that, right. but he chose that for, I mean, his parents chose that for him, but you know. So I think the thing that bothers me about that conversation about like the 80 versus the 20 is that they act as if, um, you know, they're, they act as if the people who are like very wealthy, um, somehow like are gaming the system. And I think it's more of just an optimization Mm -hmm. puzzle based on where you start from. Right. Well, and it's also, the barrier to, to entry. I was talking to John about this. If you look at whether you're an accountant, you do computer science, whether you're a lawyer, it's all learning the lingo in the words. And in a way it's not gaming the system, but it's understanding how the system operates. Yep. And so if you know the tax code, you know that you can roll <laughs> up your investment and then it's tax free and you can go spend it on another piece of real estate. And there's little things you can do here and there that make all of the difference and that can compound over time. But I think lowering that barrier to entry so that everyone has access to the same level of information is, is important in that too. Yeah. I mean, um, well, so here's an interesting thing to think about though. Um, you know, that people say like the, the wealth gap, you know, is bigger than it ever has been you know, all that stuff to a certain degree. Everybody has access to the internet mm-hmm. and to the same amount of information, you know, it's, 
but like, is that fundamentally different than like 500 years ago? You know what I mean, like the, I, th- I think education is the key, you know, to that. Um, but there's, you know, education is the key, but you, you, there's like another piece of this, which is like, you have to go and find that and you have to go and use it. Right. Um, and so I think like the internet's done so much, you know, from that perspective. I mean, you can, if you want to know about a Roth IRA, which number one way to become a millionaire you yeah. know, in the United States is a Roth IRA. If you want to know about a Roth IRA, Google it. Yeah. And there's 10 million, you know, web pages that'll tell you about how do I use a Roth IRA. Um, I think it's also, I think where like the environment comes in is that you have to know the Roth IRA is a thing. Yeah. You know, first. Yeah, and that's what I was, that's kind of what I meant too. Is I don't know if I meant lower the barrier to entry. One thing that often frustrates me in kind of the space that I've been in the last couple of years of like venture capital and startup is everyone has all of this fancy vernacular to, to <laughs> give you an example. Yeah. That means vocabulary, folks. Yeah, like it kind of drives me crazy because you can create this large d- divide divide between two different people who can understand the same concept, but because you're using two different words to mean the same thing. It, it segments and cuts out one half of the people. And so you have to do the work to, to understand how things operate in general, but it's like you can be so divisive with the words that you pick to use. That's a really good point that language, you know, is a barrier as well. And, you know, I, what's interesting though, is it feels like, it, it feels like language in that context, like in the, the context of, um, you know, the, the kind of finance, you know, space angel investing mm-hmm. or just investing in general there's a there's a community that gets built around vernacular that's unique, mm-hmm. right? And so, if if uh, we have a a secret greeting, you know, that nobody else knows, and we walk up to each other and we say it, there's a relationship built you know between us mm-hmm. uh, that other people don't have. And I think there's some of that that happens within different you know subgroups, and I don't think it's intentionally you know uh, I don't think it's I don't think the intention from the beginning is to segment out everybody. I think it's more of to build the community. Uh, but yeah, language is important. You know, you have to think about kind of how do you speak to, you know, the the average you know person, especially on a podcast. Yeah. Um, so that's really interesting. Yeah, it's one of the things that I really try and do is translate because it frustrates me because you get this vernacular and then it gets even worse than that. You start to make acronyms, you know, have ARR and you have MRR and then you start to use different words like churn and burn and all these different things that confuse the heck out of people. Whenever you have to understand who it is you're talking to and the point that you're trying to make it. And so you have to, you have to tilt your language towards the, the audience that you're trying to talk to. Yeah. It's interesting. Actually a question for you since you kind of work in the, in the space, you know, there's a, and like, I think angel investing is great. Obviously people like they, mm-hmm. you know, everybody needs help to get things off and like to provide resources, whether it be money or just access to knowledge. Right. Um, I think is a, a huge thing, but there's also like a level of when you get into like the, you know, C, you know, B, C, you know, series kind of funding mm-hmm. where it's like, it's almost like a, like a Ponzi, you know, like they, like, it's like, you know, the A series comes in and then they sell it to their buddies so that they come in for the B series at a higher valuation. And like the A is making money mm-hmm. and the B does the same thing to the C. And so that's a, that's an interest, like finance, the incentives in finance, I don't know that they drive the best outcomes for entrepreneurs either. It, well, yeah, there's a lot of thoughts that I have on that, that I, I won't delve into today, maybe in the future, but it's interesting because 
Listen, I'm all for capitalism. Mm -hmm. I love the private finance market and all these types of things. I think it's great. But it's interesting if you look at, you're talking about, you have a high net worth individual group of individuals who invest in one round of an investment. They're like, oh, this is great. My buddy can make some money off this. Gets him to come into the next round and the next round. And it's this private group of individuals that are known as accredited investors. And people that aren't accredited don't have access to this. But it's crazy to me to think about it like that because you have... And I'll just fill it out real quick. An accredited investor is a high net worth individual, someone with over a million dollars of non-residential assets, or they make over $250,000 annually. Just really briefly, that's how I'll sum it up. But you have people that are not accredited, people that are making thirty dollars or $40,000 a year. They can go gamble. They can go buy public stocks. They can, which is all maybe not the same. Gambling is the same risk as investing in a startup company, but yet you have the segmented high net worth audience that's the only one that has access to this deal flow. Yeah, I think that's interesting, though, because it's I think it's a difference in quantity, though, right? Like when you're going and gambling, like you might gamble a couple hundred bucks, you know, if you're me, yeah. <laughs> you're going to gamble a couple hundred bucks. I think if you're investing, like, you know, if you're if you're not at a certain threshold for income, like you could put everything that you have you know, into that and, and lose it, you know. So I, I agree with you. I like that's kind of what Kickstarter did in a, in a way, except you just yeah. don't own like equity, you know, in the, the business usually. So my pushback on that is you could go gamble all of the money you have. That's true. That is the consumer's choice. And so you may say, well, the startup doesn't want you to invest in them. Well, the startup, the founders are able to say, Hey, we're setting a minimum threshold of $10,000, a million dollars. They can set that threshold of money and they can say, we don't want your money. You're not strategic for us. We want to go with this other person. So if both parties have the consent to say yes or no to each other, I don't see why that's much different than choosing to just go gamble. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't disagree with you. I think you changed my mind. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I, I'm, I, we just really got in the weeds there. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I mean, that's, that's kind of the free market, right? Let, let people make the decisions that they can make for themselves and don't impose, you know, arbitrary lines, you know, cause to your point, like I'm sure that there would have been early investors in Uber and Twitter and all these other companies if it wasn't relying on, you know, having accredited investor status or something like that. One of the things that I think it's the SEC is talking about is allowing accreditation for people to take an exam. So they take an exam for financial literacy. If they pass it, they're accredited even without the income thresholds. Wow. I'm all for that. Yeah. I, I think, think that's, that's a great, great idea. Yeah. No, I'm, I have like my perspective is people should have the ability to spend money on whatever it is that mm -hmm. they want to spend money on with it, within reason. Um, <laughs> and, uh, particularly within investments when, you know, I, I think also, you know, community is really important in the startup you know, space. Mm -hmm having the right, you know, group of people around you. Um, I also, like, I wonder if, you know, if you could imagine that you're trying to raise, you know, $100,000 and you have one investor versus, you know, $50 increments from a bunch of different investors. Yeah. Your marketing gets much easier when you have, <laughs> you know, a bunch of $50 investors versus one $100,000 investor because you have, you know, Yep. hundred people or whatever that, that are going and doing the marketing for you. So that's an interesting. Yeah, that's called, that's called crowdfunding, which is allowed for non-accredited investors. And it's a great, if you are a business to consumer, meaning you sell a consumer product like a toothbrush or a movie or something like that, crowdfunding is great because all of those people that invested 50 bucks become salesmen for your company pretty much. Do, can you actually buy equity in a business or yep. is it that you have to buy the product? Nope. So you can do equity in a business as a non-accredited investor through crowdfunding. So. Where's the, the break point? 
right, between crowdfunding and having to be an accredited investor? Like at what point do you hit a threshold where it's one or the other? So it depends on which exemption you you file under. So the okay. SEC, I have the actual <laughs> numbers in my, uh, I put a slide together on this last week actually, <laughs> Great. but there's different thresholds. So you can apply to raise up to, I believe a million dollars under one exemption and $15 million other under another exemption via crowdfunding platforms. The problem with using a crowdfunding platform is a you're likely as from the entrepreneur's perspective you're likely not as getting as strategic of an investor right so you want someone who's got a large network who knows your space well and they're typically going to be those higher net worth individuals the second one is the crowdfunding platform will often take it a percentage of the money that is going to that entrepreneur for the raise as their processing fee so there's just a comfort couple of different ways to look at it but crowdfunding is an actually a unique a new way that's come out to do this so if i wanted to raise you know uh, $16 million. Can I break that down and have both or do you have to choose and file one versus the other? No, you can do both. Um, you wouldn't, I don't think you'd do it in the same round, but around. So when you raise a bunch of money collectively as one lump sum, that's referred to as a round. And so the round is a very subjective thing that you do. And so you could raise a $50,000 crowdfunding round, close that round, which just means you put the money in the bank. And then two days later, you could open up a private equity round for $10 million. Not that that'd make any sort of sense, but you could in theory do that. Yeah, that's interesting. I, it, do you, I guess, is that common to see both types? And if not, it seems like that's the best of both worlds. So, well, I mean, first of all, let me pull, put on my legal hat here. This is not uh, financial <laughs> advice, nor is it legal advice. This is speculative. Uh, this is teaching Dane who knows nothing about this. Well, and I could have a couple of things wrong here or there, but the, I think the principle in general is right. To answer your question, I primarily have worked with business to business, so B2B companies that don't utilize crowdfunding because it doesn't make strategic sense for them. I can't really speak for consumer companies. Um, I think it actually does make a good amount of sense for consumer companies because those people can actually buy your product. You're talking to your end consumer. In your uh, experience with entrepreneurship, do you find that most people are looking for capital or do you find that most people are looking for strategic partnerships? I'm sure it's both, right? Mm. But, you know, you said, you know, one of the reasons they don't crowdfund is because there's not a like a strategic partnership in there. You know, it, it feels like when I think about raising a round, you know, obviously like you want to get mm. as good of advice as you could, but it feels like the purpose of the round is to raise money. So, well, so I guess one thing to add to the crowdfunding is that there's often a minimum that you have to set for the threshold. And if you don't cross that, you don't get the money that you've raised. And so one of the difficulties, and this is true of enterprise sales, it's easier to have one person say yes for a million dollars. That's one sale you have to make yep. versus if you're trying to raise a million from $50 increments, that is significantly more effort and more yeses you have to yeah. get. It's like shifting your marketing budget from you know, after you have the investor to before you have the investor to get investors, then yeah, move forward. Huh, that's interesting. So it's, it's a fascinating, cool space. Um, I love it. I think it's really cool and exciting, but it is highly, I guess it gets very technical. And so that's good. I recognize the importance, but it's also like, I want to live in a world where I can explain it to people and they understand it. Yeah. I'm going to blame it on the lawyers. <laughs> I think the lawyers are to blame for all the, yeah. the lingo. Yeah. I, I run into that with, you know, documents. Sometimes it's like, man, just put it in plain English. You know, like we could all understand it. I don't know if you've ever read like agreements, you know, like, I, I read every agreement I sign. Yeah. So 
I mean, you get you get my. That's actually that's an interesting sub tangent, you know, that you could take here is not only is it hard for people to get into it, but it's also misleading mm -hmm. because people who maybe don't understand what it is that they're reading because of all the jargon are signing up for things that that maybe they wouldn't have if it were just put in plain English. Yeah. Well, the the other tricky thing too that loyal lawyers will do is like you may think you're signing a contract for one thing or, or agreeing to one thing. And it, you would often think the first or second or first paragraph would have, what is this about? Cause what we always taught in school is like open up with your topic sentence, your topic paragraph. But often it's like, they'll start off with one thing, like often the privacy agreements, but then it's like hidden in a sentence in section three C paragraph D page 469,000 right. is this little gotcha area where they're going to collect all of your data. Or they're going to, they may have different liquidation preferences or just like little tricky things like that. You know, it's interesting. Uh, I actually think, uh, not to take us on a completely different route, Go but for I, th it. I think AI could be a big part of this. Okay. Because you could actually ask questions of an AI yep. and it could read and interpret the, you know, the lawyer language and be able to provide you, you know, feedback on what it is that you're reading you know, explain like I'm five version you know, of that. I wanted to head into AI, so I'm glad you made that segue. <laughs> okay, cool. Set so, your mind. All right, nerd out on this real quick. Yeah. On AI? Uh, okay, well, just go. Well, I was going to say just go, but I meant specifically like you can ask questions about the contract. Like ChatGPT, is is that at a place where it could do it or which sort of chatbot would you need to use to ask questions? Yeah. Um, well, so um, – I'll say yes with a caveat. Yes to ChatGPT being a bot that can do it um, with some caveats. So uh, I would say, like, you know, if I'm if I'm going to sign a legal document, I want to use AI to be able to understand what's in the legal document. Like, I'm using the the best model that I can find, you know, that's cost effective to do. So, like, GPT four would be a great model, you know, to be able to use. For anybody who doesn't know, ChatGPT. It's kind of had its uh, social zeitgeist, so there's a lot of people you know who have been using it, but it's a uh, it's an artificial intelligence model that allows you to ask questions to it, and it'll provide responses to you you know based on data that it's been trained on you know on the internet, right? So that's where you run into some challenges, though, is like the data, you know, up till like this point, uh, GPT, I think it was 2021 was the last year mm -hmm. that. The, the data from the internet actually was trained was used within the model and so you can actually run into situations where the it's outdated like its perspectives outdated because we've learned something new you know since then uh, so you have to be really careful of that but I think I mean um, you can feed documents into GPT and ask questions and it'll tell you it's uh, interpretation of the thing mm -hmm. that you're asking a question about. And then it'll actually like, it'll give you like a reference back to that part of the document where it'll say, you know, in section four, page 300, you know, this is uh, where I got this information from. You'll read through this if you want to, but here's my interpretation of it, which is incredibly powerful. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that really is the translator, you know, that we've been looking for. Um, for a lot of these things. So that's that's incredibly powerful there. I think it's cool because like you mentioned, you could say translate this part to me as if you're talking to a five-year-old. It does it. And you could say, ooh, I don't like that. I want to amend that. And you could say to ChatGPT, ChatGPT, pretend you are a lawyer. Rewrite this in the terms that I would like, which is X, Y, and Z. Like think about like DocuSign. Mm -hmm. They have such a huge opportunity with like any of these AI models because imagine like having DocuSign gets sent to you. There's a little text box off to the side. You just start asking questions about your document and it wow. can answer anything. I did not even think of that. Yeah. Incredible use case. Tools already built. 
You know, like, like that's, that's an amazing opportunity, you know? So I think that we'll see integrations like that. I mean, Expedia has one where it's like, Hey, I want to go to Mexico these dates for approximately this amount of money, like put together, uh, you know, a, a, like a trip directory or whatever for me. And it'll say like, here's the flights that I suggest. Here's the hotels that I suggest. Here's some events, you know, that, or, uh, you know, things that you can do while you're there that are highly rated and also cheap. I mean, I, I think we'll see this in a lot of, it'll be, I think there'll probably be less people who interact directly with ChatGPT and more people who interact with ChatGPT with the front end of Expedia or right. DocuSign or whatever. It just needs to be better than the ones that are on like Best Buy and whatever else. <laughs> yeah. When I was going through that whole camera situation, it, people that don't know, I got the wrong camera is very expensive and I need to find the right camera. It was just a whole mess. And uh, I would use, their thing because you can't call Best Buy. They don't have any store numbers, yep. which is absurd. I couldn't call the local Best Buy. And so- You're getting old, man. <laughs> it, it was so frustrating. Yeah. Anyways, so I couldn't call them because mm. uh, they said that I, the guy had rung up my camera incorrectly and they said I had left with the camera, even though he told me that he was shipping it to me based on the way he was checking it out. And so I, I was trying to call the store and say like, hey, I haven't received my camera. The shipment never came in. And so- the I called like the global supporters. I was chatting with the support, and it was like, "No, we have right here in the documentation that you left with your camera." And I'm like, "Check the footage. I didn't see with it." And they're like, "We can't check the footage. We can't access the local store." It was just a mess. But anyways, uh, we need ChatGPT and like all of those Best Buy and different companies support lines where it's not giving you the four different prompts, and then you ju you're just trying to click through and get to the one that says "Talk to an actual rep." Yep. No, I I think there's a huge. Uh, customer service use case and AI as well. I mean, nobody likes to, you know, be on a call and then all of a sudden it's like, you know, let me put some terrible, you know, elevator music on for the <laughs> next, you know, five minutes. And then when it does answer, it's like the fake keyboard. Yep. I don't know if you ever heard that yep. where you call and it's like, you know, okay, let me check. And it's like, you're not fooling anybody. Right. Right. So I think there's a huge customer use, uh, customer service use case uh, around AI. I mean, I think fundamentally it'll it'll touch all aspects of the things that we do. Again, I, I'm I don't know that I believe that it's going to be like everybody goes to ChatGPT as like the oracle to like ask questions about how you do X, Y, or Z. But I do think that it'll make individual uh, technologies or websites that we interact with on a daily basis much more effective at the thing that you're trying to do. Does it replace Google? Yeah, you know that's, that's an interesting, um, it's an interesting question, uh, and actually a question that I have, uh, I'm going to attempt to have a stream of consciousness here that actually you know makes sense around this thing. So, uh, what's interesting to me is if you think about Google, you think about Bing, you think about like all these different search engines, like they're looking at integrating these AI tools, you know, into them as, as part of their search, you know, functionality. The interesting thing though, is like nobody pays for Google. Nobody pay, no, uh, advertisers pay for Google, right. but no user pays for Google or Bing. And so these models are very expensive to run, right? It takes a ton of GPU to be able to run these models. And like, we're not even at a scale yet where it's like everybody. GPU, let's. Uh... Oh, I'm sorry. Um, I think graphics processing unit or mm -hmm. something like that. Um, I should probably know that, but I think it's graphics processing unit. It's a, it's a, it's a computer. Think about it as a computer. And, and what it does is it processes the words that are coming in and allows the, the model to make the associations and give you your output. So 
uh, NVIDIA literally cannot produce enough GPUs. Uh, like there's not enough GPUs in the world right now to, de- to develop AI to the degree that we would like to. De- I mean, we're, we're compute constrained is what I'm trying to say. So that's why if you look at NVIDIA stock over the last like, you know, five or six months, that's the reason that it's going crazy is yep. because we literally cannot build enough compute to be able to uh, get to the level of the, or I guess reach the full capability of these, these use cases. And so what's interesting to me, sorry, back to the point, what's interesting to me is you think about like Google being their business model doesn't charge the user for the usage. And so if the cost of the usage actually goes up, you know, dramatic or, you know, if, if the usage goes up dramatically and it's a high cost, then how do you justify having these tools? And so I, I think AI will actually be constrained based on the raw compute power that's available as opposed to like, I don't think it's like a Google versus you know, um, like a AI thing. I think it's more of a uh, business. Does the business model work with the current technology that we have? Because the cost may outstrip the actual you know, benefit to the businesses. So people get like Google could actually, or Microsoft could actually lose money uh, for a long time on these AI models, despite it being much better for the consumer. It's kind of an interesting thing. Yeah, so. that, that is weird. I was just thinking from my own personal experience, often, I'll look up things like 10 ways to make my podcast better, right? So that'll be a Google search and then SEO will pull relevant articles. Mm-hmm. Well, as of late, I've been going to chat GPT and saying, how do you think I can improve my podcast? And then I've been telling it, you know, it's called real conversations. I talk to these types of guests and it gives me all of this great, super specific feedback. And to me, it's so much better than trying to read an article that may have just optimized for SEO and isn't even relevant yep. to what I'm asking. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the key is is the context is is key there, right? That's that's why Chat GPT is so powerful. And Chat GPT. So again, for everybody uh, who may not be as familiar with this stuff, uh, Chat GPT is what's called, and back to the acronyms, is what's called an LLM, which is a large language model. Uh, there are many different types of large language models. It's something that there'll be lots of different options for. And so ChatGPT isn't like the only AI that mm-hmm. you can ever use. So I think it's important to call that out because a lot of times people talk about AI and they conflate AI with ChatGPT. ChatGPT is certainly the front runner, but it's like saying, you know, uh, you know, I need a, a smartphone and you only think of Apple. Yeah. Right. It's like saying that Google is the internet. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah. That's fascinating. One thing that, uh, relative and tangential to AI that I saw on the internet. It was a really funny video. It's, it's that time of year where things are getting political. And I saw yes. this, I thought this video of Donald Trump and uh, of Biden going back and forth and this absurd conversation that definitely wasn't real. Yep. I'm pretty sure it's called deep fake AI. Yeah. Can you talk to me about what is deep fake AI and how does that work? Yeah, man, deep fakes are probably the scariest part of the technology to me right now yeah. just because as humans we rely so much on what we hear and what we see you know visually um and so like i've i've done some testing with like deep fake you know ai stuff for voices and it it is scary right like the the concept of like you know my wife gets a call from somebody who's trying to scam her out of money and they say hey you know in my voice like hey uh uh i'm in trouble you know can you send me 500 bucks like you know, here's the way to do it. And it sounds like me. That's terrifying. Right. Or, you know, the ability, like even at a business, like there was a a story not too long ago where like a bank president got a phone call from like one of the controllers or whoever, and they were asking for money. They, they 
essentially wired like $30 million oh to this hacker. And it's because they were, they spoofed the person's voice. Yeah. And, and, and then you think about like the authentication stuff. There's a lot of banks that use voice authentication to get into your bank. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that's, it's like, ter- that's terrifying you know, to me, but I also think it, it could be really valuable as well. Um, you know, being able to, uh, have conversations with, you know, all kinds of different scientists from the past as if like they're really there. Like, new like Grant's already yeah, doing. Yeah, kind of like, uh, yeah, like uh, Grant's humanoid, right? I, I think that's a really powerful thing. I mean, how much more interesting is to, like having to learn quantum physics from Einstein versus, you know, a book? Yeah. Something? You know, back to the kind of education piece of this, like there's much more effective ways for us to teach people. Yeah, growing up, all we had was Bill Nye and Miss Frizzle. <laughs> Yeah, which and they were great. I yeah, loved them. I yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, you know, it's it's just an interesting different paradigm in the way that that we think about things. But to your point, with the election coming up and and um, um, deep fake technology getting so good, you know, I think we're gonna have to go from a default of believing what you see, which is kind of what people are doing today to not believing anything until it's authenticated. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like we've talked about blockchain and a bunch of other stuff in the past. I think that's actually one way that you could. Crypto is actually relevant. Yeah. I, I mean, because the whole point of crypto is that it's non, non-fungible. Right. Right. Uh, well, NFT, you know, everybody heard NFTs like two years ago. Right. They're falling out of grace with everyone. NFT is non-fungible token. And what that means is that you can't have, you can't duplicate it. Mm-hmm. There's only one of them. And so I think if you had like a, a Twitter account and it, wait, one second, you can't duplicate it because it's almost like a, a set of DNA where it's got this unique code associated with it. Correct. Yeah. Great question. So the way blockchain works, the whole reason that it's called blockchain is in distributed ledger technology is so imagine that like you have a million different computers across the world. They're all running the same program, and anytime anybody contributes to it, it gets validated by a million computers across the world. Mm-hmm. So everybody checks each other and says, "Did you see this?" And okay. they say, "Yep, I saw that." Right, and and then they all update their database. That's effectively a blockchain. Okay, and so the the reason why it can't it's non fungible is because the second that somebody in that million you know network says, uh, "I'm going to introduce a, a fake." All the other computers go, hey, did you see that? And they say, yeah, it didn't work on mine either. And then they just boot out. Wow, you know, the interesting. Person, the, the the imposter, right? So that's non-fungible, you know, token, uh, tokenomics, if you will. Yeah. So um, the interesting thing, though, to think about is, like, you run that at scale with AI. I mean, if, if like, let's say you had a, you know, a uh, an address uh, that was designated for, your Twitter account and every tweet that came out was essentially a block that validates if it came from your address. Well, it's really hard to spoof that mm-hmm. if somebody doesn't have access to your you know address that you're actually sending those from. So I think there's, and again, I don't know how this will actually manifest itself in the way that the, the technology, you know, all develops, uh, but that's one example of a way that you can combat against like the massive spam, you know, that happens um, and, and kind of fake content that generate that's, looks real, but is generated. Well, my, my concern is rather with 
the media, right? So you have the position of things that are on online, all the videos that are already deep fakes and people having a hard time differentiating between what is real and what is not. You have Facebook stepping in to try and moderate saying this is fake news, which has become a mean meme in of itself. Mm. I don't really like the idea of the corporation trying to moderate the content, but at the same time, I'm watching a lot of videos online. I'm thinking to myself, is this real? Because if it is, that's crazy. But if it's not, that was very convincing. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, you can imagine, though, like the White House has an account and the White House puts out press releases and all kinds of things signed by your digital signature. And then you can read that and you can say, yep, this came from the White House account. We know it's authenticated. Good to go. Um, So I I think it's, you know, I I don't think about it as like person to person or like, Mm -hmm. you know, Jacob's brand type of thing. I think about it as Every, everybody and everything that has an account that produces content will have to have some kind of di- di- digital signature to be able to say, this came from me, right? And if, if you see a video of Trump or Biden or whoever going off the rails talking about you know something, if it's not digitally authenticated to the source that it says it's from, then don't trust it. But how, how do you know if it's digitally authenticated to the source? Because they published it. But for in the instance of like there's leak videos, you know, of like this happened with a former president and it just came out now. We just found out here's the video footage of it. In that instance, the White House is not about to publish that video. So how are you going to know if it's oh, real? But Fox News and CNN and everybody else will, right? And so, I mean, you still but have we to trust that. Well, so you still have to, again, I don't think we're going to get into a place where like, you know, you should just trust the institution. Yeah. But, but I think there is an important key aspect of this, which is I need to trust that it came from a certain institution. Mm -hmm. That way, if we find out that that's wrong, we hold them accountable Mm -hmm. for that thing. And it can't just be like, Oh, some spoof account, you know, put this out there and it looks like CNN, you know, whatever. There should be an authentication, you know, mechanism there so that people can actually give feedback back to the free market thing. Yeah. People should be mad when news outlets publish false information, you know, that ends up being, proven so it's the credibility of the source then yeah i see yeah dude they're so funny though like for as freaked out as i i do get about deep ai there's there's some really yeah, funny entertaining ones. well i mean that's that's actually like one of the uh i you know i talked to some folks the other day and they're like we can't you know we need to not use ai we need to ban this uh and we were kind of talking particularly in the context of education and number one it's like good luck you know <laughs> like i don't know how you're going to do that that's that's a you know a tall task the other aspect of it is we use AI all the time and people just don't realize, you know, it's not a generative AI. So it doesn't generate pictures and words and videos and stuff, but it generates Spotify playlist and yeah. YouTube playlist and, you know, all these other TikTok, right? Like all these things that we rely on, uh, the AI that runs your Google maps is another great example. Like there are AI everywhere mm-hmm. in all these applications that we have. So anybody who says like, Oh, I don't believe in AI or don't use it. It's like, if you have a smartphone, uh, you know, that's fundamentally not the right <laughs> statement to make. You may not believe in generative AI, but you're using AI for sure. Well, and to pull from the crowd here, shout out to Grant Johnson. He had a question for you because even though he works with you, he still has questions. <laughs> Great. Yeah, Grant has many questions, so that makes sense. Grant wants to know live on the air. I'd be interested to hear more about some of the fields that he thinks general AI will impact first besides computer science. Yeah, uh, interesting question. So uh, I think healthcare will be a big one. Um, I think marketing is going to be, well, so yeah, let, let's, before I just run through like mm-hmm. a bunch of, uh, a whole list of things, like let's talk about marketing first. So, um, actually before we go into that, let's talk about 
what my perspective is on does AI replace people? Because I think that's an important kind of founding starting place. I don't think that AI replaces people. I think it takes somebody and it makes them 10x more productive Mm -hmm. in the thing that they're trying to do. Um, So like in the... In the case of marketing, like copy is probably like, you know, some I'm, I'm sure there's lots of people who enjoy, you know, writing copy and stuff, but mm. it, the constraint largely is probably time. And so the ability to have somebody who can, or, or have an AI where you can say, hey, write me copy for a website uh, about coffee using, you know, these different things. And it just generates all the text that you can put on there and then you can edit and make it you know, specific to the thing that you want. That's incredibly powerful from like a marketing you know, perspective or a website, you know, so, like a software company. Uh, and actually Wix is doing a lot of this stuff. Like mm-hmm. they're integrating that into their website. So you can just ask, I need a text box with, you know, a flowery background and whatever. And it generates the content for you and, and just puts it on your website. So I think like the marketing space is, is going to explode right. know, from that, that perspective. I think it'll be up to the people to find the stories that are worth telling uh, because with 10x output, you also can end up with 10x. Like if you have like a bad story and you multiply that, you just get a bunch of bad stories. <laughs> so I think it'll be how, how do people effectively find stories that are worth telling um, and are engaging you know, to people? Uh, I think healthcare is huge. My wife's a nurse, you know, and, and one of the things that she talks about is charting. So, you know, every shift they have to write down personal information. What are the vitals? You know, how did they react? You know, all these different things. Uh, imagine like a summarization of all that content. Like, or like imagine that you just, again, this probably won't happen. There's probably like a bunch of HIPAA violations, you know, <laughs> here. So like, I'm, <laughs> I, I got to be careful. But like, you know, imagine that you like had a, a small camera or something that you kept on you at all times. And it's just interpreting the video that's coming in and charting for you. And then it gives you a synopsis at the end of the night that says, talk to this patient. This is what the patient said. The vitals, you know, I know what room that I'm in because I'm in a you know close proximity to this. And so it just pulls vitals automatically. I mean, there's like, what an incredible thing, you know, for, and it, it would help with the, the thoroughness of, of, you know, the data that we get on people, I mean, in healthcare, one of the challenges is like you have big time fatigue. I mean, these are like 12 hour shifts. So somebody's ability to chart on how, you know, somebody's doing, you know, the performance level goes down over time because they're tired and they're human. And so I think there's lots of opportunity there. I mean, you can look at like x-rays and be able to see, you know, spots on lungs and cancer and um, Crazy. I mean, yeah, there, there's so many, again, like there's so many different spaces uh, that this thing, I work in a manufacturing space. I mean, we're looking at rapidly using it for things like documentation. So instead of having to write, read a big binder full of content, you can just ask the question that you need and it'll you'll give you what you need and it'll give you the, the reference to the place that it got it. Um, Education is going to be a big thing. I mean, you know, you name it, it's going to, it's going to impact. One area that I see uh, it playing a big role in my life personally is content production mm-hmm. and creation and production. So for example, Whenever I would do an interview in the past, like even take this one, for example, you're likely talking a little bit louder than I am. So that's showing up as a larger audio wave on the file that I would have to go back. And this is right now we're an hour and 14 minutes into it, <laughs> which this is awesome. I love it. Yeah. yeah, that's But great. I would have to go back and every time you spoke, I would have to edit your audio wave to match mine. But then about a month ago, I freaked out because I found this free website called Alphonic that uses AI to normalize audio levels. And I don't have to do that anymore. 
And wow. that, that this episode would have taken me 10 hours to edit. And now it's done in two minutes with AI. Do you, do you use any other AI in your work process? Uh, I, I do. Uh, there's Photoshop, or I guess um, Premiere Pro. It will auto-generate uh, subtitles for me, c- captions, whenever I put my Instagram uh, reels. So l- let me tell you something that like blew my mind. So I also like have a podcast. We talk about completely different things. Yep. Um, but there's a thing called video.ai, V-I-D-Y-O.ai, okay. and it'll actually chop your video into segments that can be used in all the things, and it'll auto-put text over the top of it and optimize it for you. Will it watermark it? I don't know. There's no watermark? Okay. No. So it'll literally create Instagram Reels. It'll it'll find like where there's pauses in conversation or where it makes natural sense to stop. Video.ai? V-I-D-Y-O.ai, I think. I'm going to send that to myself. It's freaking awesome, dude. Yeah, because I'm spending a lot of time. I'm very, this goes back to kind of you're talking about with management earlier. I'm very hands-on in particular about my content. So I like to make all of it myself with yep. my reels and TikTok and whatever. But I think it's worth probably testing out AI and giving it a shot. It's like I said, you know, um, you know, my podcast is a little different. It's more of like a, for me to build a community, right? Mm-hmm. It, um, and so you know, we're not nearly as like fancy, like you got the setup, you got the nice camera, you know, all that stuff. Um, so for us, it's more about like, how do we, how do like, and you know, me and the guy that run it, like we're both like working full time, right. you know, doing the things that we're doing. So it's more of like, how do we make the most amount of content the fastest? Right. And so that's why like the video.ai thing has been incredible for us because we can take a video, upload it. It gives you like eight clips. Yep. You just, you know, put those on YouTube shorts or whatever. And that's the trade-off that I try and I try and battle between because right now my, my current content after I do an episode is I'll make the Instagram post that will have like the episode number and the name of the guest. And then I'll try and make two high quality Instagram reels that I can also repost to TikTok. And so for me, it's like, is it the level of quality or is it the quantity of the content? And so I think that's something I'll be able to test really well if I use video AI. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it'd be interesting. I mean, and the the cool thing is, you know, I'm sure there's a paid tier at some point, mm-hmm. but like, there's a fair amount of, of testing that you can do. the The challenge that we ran into though is that people, and I'm sure you you probably have this when you're editing normally anyway, but uh, if you're like me, you ramble on for a long time, <laughs> and then you know, you can't use the clip. Yep. So that, that sucks. <laughs> that is the current struggle that I have of editing those little clips. Is like. I'm like, oh, this is great. I asked a good question, and he totally answered this great. But really, to optimize, it should be 28 to 44 seconds. Yep. And so you start like trying to cut them, and every time they breathe in, you're like, cut that out. They said, um, cut that <laughs> out. You're trying to make it shorter, and then you manipulate the clip so much by the end. I think there's also an AI that will remove um yep. out of okay, yeah. Alphonic will do that too. Okay, so like we, cool. right now we could be in the woods with birds chirping behind us, and it has like a remove background noise, and it would wow. totally take it out. Or oh, if there's crazy. like a constant, like let's say I have a habit of tapping my hand on the table or on the mic, if there's a repetitive noise that you're doing in Alphonic, it will remove it for you. It'll pick up on wow. the re- the repetitive noises. Yeah, so that might not even show up because I'm probably going to use Alphonic after this episode. Yeah, that's that. Yeah, it's incredible. And like, like, and I mean, that's a great example. Like, I, you know, other than the the small amount of stuff that I've done, like, I didn't even know that it had a huge, a big impact on your work process. Yeah. But I mean, like, I think we'll see those kinds of gains in work processes from every kind of job, you know, imaginable, maybe without like exception of like a hairstylist or something like somebody who's, who's really like hands on and Mm -hmm. very people centric. Yeah. I don't, 
uh, much like you don't want to go to customer service and get a bot, you probably don't want to like go to a robot that cuts your hair and like you know, <laughs> right. have terrible conversation. Like part of that is the relationship that you build. And so I think in situations where it's person to person relationship, like you're, it's probably a pretty solid, you know, bet that it's not going to have a huge impact there. Yeah. Okay. Hard left. Dane, <laughs> I, I, I'm just so curious right now and the conversation's all over the place. Do you have any non-negotiables daily? like things that you're like, I have to do these things daily, or I guess more like routines that you think are beneficial that you do. Um, uh, to be honest, I don't, I probably should. Uh, I mean, I always try and like go to bed at a similar time. Right. Um, make sure that I'm waking up at a similar time. I think the circadian rhythm thing is really powerful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I notice, like, you know, when I was in college, it was like all over the place. You look at my sleep map and it's terrible. Yeah. But I, I, as I've, you know, gotten older and, and have a more, I have the ability to have a more steady schedule. I try and make sure that I'm kind of adhering to that. Um, I guess, do you, and if you do, are there some suggestions on things <laughs> that you think I should do? Cause like, I've thought about like meditating, um, and I like the the concept of meditating, but I find I find that I'm actually more productive at at getting to the end result of what meditation allows me to do if I just do something that I can go into autopilot. So if I go drive yeah. around, I I can pro- have a more kind of effective meditation. Uh, you know, I likely I don't need to have like a a place that I need to go. Mm. Like I just need to like be doing something like that that I can put on kind of autopilot in the brain. Yeah. Um. I feel if I just sit there and maybe it's because I'm not good enough at it and I haven't practiced, but like, I feel if I just sit there, then I don't get to the same level of like being able to think deeply about things. I I agree. I have the, I get frustrated when I try and meditate. I think it's important and that you should do it, but I sit there and I think, why isn't this working? Why is this, what am I supposed to be thinking about? <laughs> yeah. Am and, I doing it right? And, yeah. and you have like the little, you have the call map going and it's like, imagine the car passing by and you're just observing it. And I'm like, what's the make of that car? How fast is it traveling? Where's it going? <laughs> well, and then like, me, why are there so many cars? <laughs> I think also the, the question that I have, like anytime I do those is it's like, what's the point of this? Yeah. You know, like it, I feel like to me, what I want to get out of meditation is I want more clarity of mind. Mm-hmm. I want to, have deeper insights into the things that I'm thinking about. And when I, when I, you know, think about a car, it, I, I guess I, I just don't get the depth that I am hoping for right. out of that. I, what, what I look for in doing like a meditation is I feel like I'm on all the time. I'm go, go, go. I'm thinking about the eight different things that I have going on that I'm all excited about, but have so much work to do. And I feel like I need a, a reset, like just nothing else going on. Just take a second and just be there. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I think I would try and do meditation for, but that is something that I'm having a harder time as I do more and more things. You know, I, I struggle a lot when I go on vacation, mm-hmm. um, you know, from work, like, you know, everybody like is super supportive and encouraging every time I go on vacation. Right. They're always like, you know, just completely disconnect, you know, do all those things. I feel like if I completely disconnect, like if I'm gone for a week and I completely disconnect, I come back and I don't know anything, dude. I'm like, I don't know what it is. If it's like a medium term memory, you know, problem that I have or what's going on. But like, even over a weekend, if I have a really busy weekend, not thinking about work at all. And then I come back, it doesn't feel good to me. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't feel like I can pick up where I left off. Yeah. Like, I feel like I, I'm not, there's like this 
friction of having to get back on track. Um, it's easier to keep the ball rolling than to have to restart momentum. Yeah, which probably isn't healthy too. Like one one of the things I I do try and do this isn't like I wouldn't say this is a daily thing, but it's definitely a thing that I think about is. Uh, how do you be present mm-hmm. in situations where you're distracted by things? So like the the core memory I have on this is like at my wedding, right? I, I remember having like a distinct, like like I can like picture it high quality in my head is like you're here right now and you need to focus, you know, <laughs> on nothing but right. what you're doing and the fact that all these people are here to see you and the fact that like this is a really special day because it would be so easy for me to get caught up in like oh you know the wrong color of cupcake came <laughs> well, you know some thing that that isn't going to matter to me in in you know literally like a week right but will impact my experience overall so that's something that I have to be cognizant of is like how do you reduce the noise yeah. and and think about what actually matters being present. Yeah. That's so the only answer that I have found or the only one I can seem to get to work right now is ice baths. Like when, I've never tried it, man. I need to try it. Dude, will you come to a Friday five? <laughs> yeah, I'll probably be the slowest one in the dude. Pack, we, yeah, we don't care. So when you get in that ice, it doesn't matter if it's, 50 degree ice or well, explain what a Friday five is first. Okay. Yeah. Fr- now you're using your own lingo well, here, but we have explained this in previous episodes. I've caught him. He's caught me. Now Friday five is Grant Johnson, myself and a couple of our other friends, John, uh, we get together on Friday mornings and we run five miles and then we hop in the ice bath together. Yeah. You wake Not- up at 5 AM, you run five miles. Uh, we wake up at six, six. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. But, uh, it's Friday five. That started while I was training for the hundred, hundred miler. And uh, we don't all get in the ice bath together. We go one at a time. But uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that'd be awkward. No, ice hot tub. No, but like it's even if it's 50 degrees or 30 degrees, you get into that water and it just it shocks you. It really is just like that fight or flight. And it's so cold and you usually hate your life so much that like you can't think about anything else but your breath. Mm-hmm. And then once you get out, the mental clarity you have is just incredible. It's like a full reset. That's interesting. Yeah, no, I'd be happy to try it. Okay, and cryotherapy. That one's good, too. Yeah, cryotherapy I've never tried before. That's something. I'd actually like to try those Soma Soma pods. What's it? Oh, the, is that the like salt water thing uh, that you lay in? Yeah, the sensory deprivation tank. Yeah, yeah. That's, I've always wanted to do that. Yeah, that seems really interesting you know, to me. I also, uh, yeah, I think everybody nowadays struggles a little bit with, like, you know, if you don't have your phone for a certain amount of time, you're like, oh, yeah, you know, <laughs> like, what, what happened? So... I try and do like some kind of trip every year where it's like, I don't need my phone. That's great. You know, so try and focus on that. But I, I took a trip with, um, Evan, who's been on the podcast, my cousin who's my age about maybe four years ago. He went to, he started college in, uh, Ely, Minnesota, which is the very Northern tip of Minnesota. The border waters. So he's out, he's a wildland firefighter now. And so he's living the life just like totally out in the woods, cut off from society but whenever we were out there, uh, we went canoeing and camping for a couple of days, uh, backpacking for my first time, and we had no service. And so one of the things I did was just shut my phone off for the whole time. Yep. And after this three-day reset, it was so weird getting back on my phone. And so what I did was on the car ride home, the day that I left, I turned off my text notifications for my phone, 
and I've never turned them back on. Wow. So if I go into the app, like it'll have the blue little dot, like, hey, you have a text, yep. but I don't have the little one sticking up on it. I don't get a text that pops up whenever I'm on my phone trying to you do something to be intentional. else. Yeah. Yeah. So that is one thing that's been huge for me. The other thing that Rob Gerlich and I just started doing is you have all these little hacks you can do with your phone. But right now, if I triple click my lock button, it turns on grayscale. And so by removing the colors from your phone, you get so much less addictive. You get so much less dopamine out of it. Yep. So we've been trying to do that one too. That's interesting. Have, have you talked to Grant? He does, uh, he changed it all to Spanish. He, did he really? Yeah, yeah. Oh my God. So he's like, I feel like I don't have the ability to interact with content like yeah. I used to. And so I just don't use my phone as much. Um, Kid is hooked on Spanish. We have Wednesday Spanish night as well. Oh yeah. No, he loves it. It's uh, yeah. Maybe I'll join that too. That'll be my. You should. I've admittedly, and I know Grant's going to call me out if I don't, I've missed the last couple of weeks. I plan to come back guys. Don't worry. I'll be back. That's funny. Yeah. But I, I, I guess, are there other things that you do on a daily basis that are, I have to work out every day. Okay. Th- that is a non-negotiable for me. I will say I try, like I, I try and do something like physical. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been bad about like actually going to the gym and working out, but I try and do something like, like I get like 10,000 plus steps a day right. and, you know, do all those things. Right. Um, but like, again, like mowing without like my heart rate was like 130 for like an hour yesterday because <laughs> I'm you know, pushing hard. My grass was tall, like all that stuff. So I try and do something like three or four times a week where yeah. it's like, you know, play tennis, go play pickleball, do something like that. But I need to get better about like a structured, you know, every day I go and run or whatever. I used to be so much better with my habits and routines in high school and early college than I am now. But one of the things I'm so glad I started was when I was 16, I started journaling every day. Oh, that's cool. And I've missed it a little bit the last, probably last year I've been more on and off, Mm -hmm. but I have just journals and journals and journals of entries of every day since I was 16 and I'm 22 now. That's amazing. So I I can't wait to see how that grows until I'm like 50 or something. You should take a picture with it. And so you have your journal and then you have a picture of yourself. Oh, that's that's cool. See yourself physically grow. That's kind of cool. Mentally. One of the things I, I think about is like, okay, I have a goal to get married and have family and kids. Do I let the kids see the journal or not? Because one rule I have is I have to be very brutally honest in the journal of where I'm at and what's going on and how I'm feeling. And so it's like, A, they could learn so much. What a great tool. But B, it's like, do you really want your kids knowing all that about you? Yeah, that's a tough one. Maybe that's like a autobiography at the end of your life <laughs> type of thing, you know? ChatGPT can you summarize yeah. this. Hey, maybe that goes into your AI and that's what your kids interact with. Right, right. So you do the amount of data I could feed my kids. <laughs> No, it's, um, yeah, that's a, that's a cool one. I, I did that during COVID mm-hmm. because like for me, COVID was weird. I'm a very people oriented person. Okay. So if I don't spend time with people, then I feel like I'm off big time and, uh, I have roommates and stuff, but like you can only spend so much time with your roommates before it's like, right. okay, I'm tired of you, you know? Uh, but that was one of the things I did during COVID. I think every day was just journal about like, Hey, cool. what are the things? Cause I also recognize that was a unique time in history. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, I want to be able to go back and read, like, how was I thinking about this unique time in hindsight? Like were my predictions correct? That was one of my other things. This is something you should do is like trying to make a prediction every day. Oh, wow. And see how effective your predictions are. Um, was it pertaining to work or was just any sort of prediction? Just anything. It's like, I'm going to try and predict, you know, in two months, you know, what does, uh, what does this look like? What does the stock market look like? Mm. Uh, you know, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool experiment. Yeah. It's uh, it's interesting because it gets you thinking about like the future and stuff too. That's the other thing. 
I know we're like going really long and Oh, I don't care, dude. Okay. Uh, the the other thing I would say is I think um back to the this is a full circle. <laughs> the the people that just go to work and do, you know, the same thing every day. I think uh, there's a inclination for people as they as they age to not think about the future so much and think about like what is today. And so like when you're caught in the cycle of like just getting through the day, mm-hmm. you're not thinking about like where am I going to be in 2 years? And so like there's, there's an exercise that I do on like a, on a fairly regular basis, which is like, where do I see myself in six months? That's where great. do I see myself in three years? And where do I see myself in five years? And if you can, you know, I, I, I actually, I think it's practical to go in that order too, because it helps you kind of build up, you know, those things. Uh, but you can do it the opposite way too, which is like shoot a moonshot goal of five years and then try and back yourself into like, what are the things you have to be at these different, you know, uh, checkpoints in order to actually make your goal. But I think that's a, that's a huge thing about like getting older is people like find a reason to be optimistic about the future because that, you know, some people call it manifesting. I don't, I don't really know if I believe in like the tell yourself you will and you will kind right. of thing. But I do think that if you set goals and you figure out little things that you can do every day to get to that goal, like it's amazing what you can do It'll, sure. it'll motivate you. Yeah. I don't know that it's manifesting like you're saying the words, but it's rather the action that would manifest. Yeah. Like you yeah. doing things would get you that outcome. It's a catalyst. When you when you don't have anything, you don't have a North Star to walk towards, you're just wandering. Right. You know, either that or you're stagnant. You're staying in the same place. And so um, that's another thing, you know, for the, the folks that, you know, maybe don't like their job or, you know, whatever. Like, where do you want to be in mm-hmm. five years? And then just figure out what is the the path forward to that. And it gives you something to wake up and be excited about every day and work towards. Well, and try and catch yourself with how many times do I say, I'll do that tomorrow. Yeah. Like, tomorrow is the enemy of action, dude. Like, mm. I that is one that I've really been thinking a lot about lately because now that I have so many things going on in my life, it's like, oh, I'm tired. I should go to bed. I'll do that tomorrow. Yep. It's like every day starts to look like the last day. And if you yep. didn't do anything the last day, you're not doing anything tomorrow. My rule for myself is if it takes less than 15 minutes, do it. Really? Like you can't put it off till tomorrow. You just do it if it takes less than 15 minutes. Because in that, you can always find 15 minutes you know, to do something. And all the little 15-minute things that you, um, you know, that you get done, don't stack up to the next day. And so you don't end up doing like a bunch of stuff and feeling really busy. If you can just knock out like one, two, you know, three little things. And it feels like nothing because you, you know, it's just 15 minutes. Right. Mm -hmm. So like, that's a trick that I use is like, if it's less than 15 minutes, I'm just going to do it. doesn't matter. I have no choice. Like it's getting done. You know, I love it, dude. This is, this is so fun. Like I love whenever we can sit down and someone had asked you walking in, like, do you know what you're going to talk about today? Like, you know what Jake's got planned for you? And you were like, no, I don't know. Yep. And I, I then told you, Dane, I don't have a plan for this. This is just us having we're a conversation. Yeah. And that was such like a deep, fun, engaging conversation. 90 minutes flew by like that. No, I, yeah, it didn't. Yeah. Didn't feel like 90 minutes for sure. Well, I, I think, you know, we're missing this within the context of the world that we live in today. Like when, like other than the podcast, when's the last time you sat down for 90 minutes with one person and just straight up had a conversation about whatever? Yeah. It will, and without, besides me sending that text to look up video.io, not, we haven't been on our phones the whole time. Yeah. So, you know, I think this is great too. I really enjoy this. Um, it's always interesting too, hearing people's perspectives on, on things. Um, so thanks for changing my mind on, uh, <laughs> on the, dude, this was good. This was so good. Um,
thanks for coming on. You're welcome anytime. Yep. Love it. Okay. If you guys enjoyed the episode, please share it with a friend. It really helps us grow. Sincerely appreciate it. God bless America. <laughs>